You're listening to Talking Freely, where we discuss culture, politics, and religious freedom. Talking Freely is a podcast from Freedom for Faith, a Christian legal think tank that exists to protect and promote religious freedom in Australia. Welcome to Talking Freely. My name is Rowan McHugh. My guest today is Glenn Davies, who has been the Archbishop of Sydney since his election in 2013. He has completed studies at Westminster Theological Seminary and Moore College, receiving his PhD from Sheffield University in England. He was lecturer in both Old and New Testaments at Moore College, as well as a rector before his appointment as Bishop of North Sydney. As Archbishop, he considers his main task to be a man of prayer, a preacher and a pastor, encouraging the ministers in his diocese to proclaim Jesus so that people might become his disciples and grow in the obedience that comes from faith. Archbishop, welcome to Talking Freely. Thank you, Ron. Good to be with you. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the historical structures of the Anglican Church, could you take us through your own journey within it and why you believe it remains a meaningful institution to tell people about Jesus? Thank you. That's quite a question. I was uh, born into a family who were uh, church-going, and uh, so therefore I grew up in a Christian family and in an Anglican uh, family. So I was baptised before I was one and uh, confirmed when I was 14. The... So I suppose I've always been a member of the Anglican Church. Uh, It's not until your later years you sort of realise, well, is it worth being an Anglican or or should you you change ships, as it were? Uh, I became convinced of the theology of the Reformation, uh, that the Reformation provided uh, the the clearest understanding of the Scriptures, uh, a Reformed understanding in in terms of the sovereignty of God, uh, the electing purposes of God and the fulfillment of God's purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who would return in glory to bring his people uh, home into the new heavens, the new earth. Uh, there are, of course, many denominations. Uh, Anglicanism, may, some think, have a, a, a checkered history with King Henry VIII, but of course, it's really Thomas Cranmer that you need to look at to understand Anglicanism and the way in which he uh, carved out. Uh, produced the first English prayer book in 1549 and uh, developed uh, some articles of faith, which became later known as the 39 Articles. And uh, I believe that those articles reflect uh, the best understanding of scripture. Uh, there are other options, of course, in terms of polity, uh, with Presbyterianism or uh, Baptist theology, uh, independent uh, churches. Uh, the great benefit of being an Anglican is that it's uh, you're part of a whole. Uh, you're not just uh, adrift in one congregation where the pastor might rule the roost or even the elders might rule the roost, but you're actually part of a larger whole. And I think that's important in the New Testament where Paul addresses various churches and sees their connectedness with uh, the apostolic church, uh, the wider church, later the, the language of the Catholic Church was used, meaning being part of the whole. Uh, I prefer apostolic as grounded in the teaching of the apostles and that we are bound one to another so that our unity is in Christ and uh, that that is expressed in local congregations and when, when congregations meet, to, meet together. 
that's, uh, I'm, I'm an Anglican, I suppose it's true to say I'm Anglican by culture growing up, but I'm actually, I became an Anglican by conviction in my 20s, and that, or perhaps remained an Anglican uh, by conviction in my 20s, and even though I might have gone to a Presbyterian uh, seminary in the United States, uh, I did not lose my Anglican roots and, uh, and have continued to express them as seeing, seeing them as the best expression, I believe, of understanding the scriptures. The Anglican Church has historically been defined and unified by the 39 Articles religion that you've just mentioned, finalised all the way back in the 16th century. What is the reason why Australia has seen a splintering of beliefs and doctrines within each diocese to create different kinds of Anglican approaches to faith? Well, the reason why people depart from the theology of Anglicanism, from fundamentally the teaching of the Bible, which is expressed liturgically in the Book of Common Prayer and theologically in the 39 Articles. So the groundwork is the Bible and understanding the Bible. Uh, it's because of sin, really, that people depart. Uh, that's, that's the only reason why I've got denominations, I think, is because of sin. Uh, people can't uh, agree and can't see the teaching of the Bible. It must grieve God's heart, I reckon, to see denominations. However, in many ways, there are historical reasons for that. Sometimes there are theological reasons. But in the Anglican Church in Australia, you'd have thought that with a constitution which grounds out the, the teaching of Christ in the scriptures and which recognises the Book on Prayer and the Fenian Articles as our ruling principles, to use the language of the constitution, why would people depart from that? And I, I think it's because there, there are various reasons. It's the spirit of the age. Uh, which the Apostle Paul, of course, uh, warned Timothy and his readers, uh, that we can be succumbed by the spirit of the age, uh, what people think around us. But Christians need to stand out because only Christians understand that it's God's world, that we're made in God's image, and that we're, we should follow the design of our maker and recognise that there is a prince of this world, an evil prince, the uh, Hasatan, Satan, the, the devil. He is a real person or has a real personality. He is an angelic being. And he uh, is very persuasive in the hearts of people without their realizing that he's turning them away from the living God and turning them away from the word of the living God. The authority of scripture is such a fundamental plank for understanding uh, the Bible and the Christian faith and especially in the Reformation, where so many other authorities, church authorities, tradition, came in and, as it were, undermined the, the teaching of Scripture. So I think that that's, that's the problem in the Anglican Church uh, today. Uh, we need to draw people back to their ordination vows, uh, to the fact that the, the Scriptures are God's Word, and we need to heed God's Word. Uh, that's, that's the importance... But it says, it, the people of God departing from, from God's teaching is as old, of course, as Moses uh, in the days of Israel, when despite the great salvation that took place for the people of Israel, they rebelled against him. They wanted the, they wanted the leeks back in, um, in Egypt. Good grief. One, not quite sure why, but uh, rather, rather than follow God and the demands that would be upon them in following God, in trusting God. Uh, I think that's the, the, the problem that we have in the Anglican Church in Australia 
is that uh, people use a bit of sophistry to say, oh, no, there are different interpretations to the, to the scriptures. And I don't, I don't see that myself, and I don't see that in the teaching of the apostles. Certainly there are some things we may disagree on, and even the New Testament, you have what the concept of adiaphora, uh, things which are not important, you know, where in terms of, you know, eating meats and uh, things of that, of that character. Uh, even circumcision, come, you know, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, but Jews could continue to be circumcised. Uh, there's a, a, an opportunity for freedom of conscience along those lines. But our unity in Christ has to be grounded in the, in the teaching of the Bible of what is essential for salvation and what is essential to, uh, to reflect the obedience of faith. Uh, as you said in your, in your introduction, the obedience that springs from faith in God. Uh, it's very interesting. The Great Commission is always worth looking at again, where the command is to make disciples of all nations. So there's that breadth and that diversity. And you, when you make, as you make disciples, you baptize them in the name of the triune God. But it doesn't stop there. You teach them to obey all of Jesus' commandments. And the commandments of God are integral to the Christian faith. And it's where people digress from the commandments of God that problems will arise. Our, uh, our latest uh, change, of course, has been with regard to sexual ethics, where there's been a move among even some bishops to think that we can hallow or sanctify homosexual relationships where the Bible has very clear teaching with regard to that. And if your desire is so strong to endorse homosexual uh, behaviour and, and unions between people, then you will find ways of loopholes or undermine the text of Scripture to satisfy your own desires and to meet the spirit of the age. But the Bible tells us, don't do that. Uh, follow Christ. Do not go beyond that which is written, uh, to quote Paul to the Corinthians. The General Synod meeting of the Anglican Church is to be held this year, which involves bringing disparate groups of Anglicans together. What decisions do you predict will be made? And what is the likelihood of the church remaining unified now that evidently non-negotiable lines are being crossed? We had a very unsatisfactory opinion from a group of people called the Appellate Tribunal, sort of like a Supreme Court uh, or a High Court in our, in our country. And uh, that uh, group of uh, four lawyers and three bishops, or there were only two bishops because one bishop had to recuse himself, uh, made, brought, came to uh, an opinion that the doctrine of our church was only to do with salvation. Uh, that is, the, the doctrine of marriage which the Bible clearly has a doctrine of marriage, uh, because it's not a, a salvation issue, the doctrine of marriage, as opposed to justification, for example, then they thought that it was not that you could have different views on marriage, like between people of the same sex, uh, without contravening the constitution. Uh, that, shall I say, was a novel idea, uh, although it had been expressed before, but hardly had won the acclaim of the national church and certainly the bishops. And one of the bishops' roles is to uphold the faith, uh, to be a teacher of the faith and to make sure the faith is being taught in local churches. That's one of my roles as a bishop. And there's a discipline uh, connected with that. Canon law 
the, the word canon is rule. So you want to have make sure that people are following the rules, as it were, the rules which God gives. Now we we have human rules which reflect that uh, in our in our church. Of course, every denomination is going to have those rules, but uh, where those rules reflect the teaching of Scripture, then they're they're worthy of being kept. The uh, general synod has the opportunity of making a statement about the faith of the church which would, in my opinion, um, overtake the, the views of the appellate tribunal. Uh, the appellate tribunal has made, has made very narrow definition about the constitution, but the general synod has the power, the authority, and I believe is in, incumbent upon the members of the general synod to declare what the truth is about marriage in God's eyes. Uh, we call it holy matrimony. Uh, and that which those two are joined not in accordance with God's laws, it becomes unholy matrimony. And we need to make those distinctions because we want to honour God even in our marriage. Our marriage service, the Book Common Prayer, uh, is a way of honouring God, how Jesus honoured the, uh, the marriage at Cana, for example. Uh, marriage is a good estate. Singleness is a good estate too, but marriage is something that God has provided for mankind, not just for the procreation, of, um, of, of children, but also for the, the benefit of the companionship that you have, both in relationships and, of course, in, in the sexual union uh, from which uh, children are formed. I'm an optimist with regard to the General Senate. The General Senate has made, over the last uh, nearly 20 years, resolutions, as we saw this coming, uh, resolutions on the doctrine of marriage. Resolutions that marriage was a, a permanent, voluntary association, exclusive between a man and a woman. And this was the teaching of the Bible, and this was, this, this was what we believed to be the case. Uh, in 2004, you might recall that John Howard, when he was Prime Minister, strengthened the Marriage Act because he too could see on the horizon uh, the move to uh, seek another expression of marriage whereby two men or two women could be married. So although it was assumed in 1961 when the Act was first passed in the Commonwealth Parliament, uh, John Howard included in that Act the language of a man and a woman. Well, of course, it, it, didn't, it, it didn't last two decades uh, before that was uh, taken away uh, through the uh, the plebiscite or the postal ballot that uh, Australia did where 60% of Australians, of voting Australians, uh, actually uh, wanted the change. 40% of Australians didn't want the change. And that's not a small minority. Uh, and we need to recognise that, that there are clearly now different views of what marriage are. Uh, some people in the General Centre would like us to move uh, with the spirit of the age into what the, the, uh, the government has done. Uh, the government's ruling for all people, not just for Christians, of course, but as Christians, we're still citizens and we have a right to be heard and a right to vote. I'm optimistic because the General Senate has made these statements beforehand. Despite there being a militant uh, minority in the membership of General Senate who, who wish to see a change in our church uh, on this matter, uh, I think that uh, uh, the General Senate will make statements which I believe will clarify our teaching. I should add that the appellate tribunal didn't actually make any statements about marriage. They talked about the blessing of same-sex unions. But of course, what they failed to understand is that if a union is not a, a union which is in accordance with God's word, 
then to bless such a union would be to bless sin. And that seems to escape the attention of the members of the appellate tribunal, uh, which is very sad. In fact, it's quite disturbing. Uh, I, um, my view is that the marriage, the doctrine of marriage in our church uh, is something we do not want to change. If people want to change that doctrine, as I've said publicly beforehand, then, then they should leave or start their own church. It's a free world. Lots of people do it. Start your own church, uh, but don't change the doctrine of our church because it happens to suit your personality or your personal views. The great, the great bulk of Anglicans in this country uh, want to see the teaching of Jesus preserved, not only on, in our doctrine, but in our life. You've just mentioned the plebiscite on same-sex marriage. During that debate, the Sydney Diocese donated a million dollars to the No campaign. What motivated this level of support and what were some of your associated concerns about the impact of same-sex marriage on religious freedom? A million dollars is always a, uh, a, uh, a headline, a tractor, as it were. Uh, perhaps if we'd just given $900,000, it wouldn't have been as bad in the, in the views of some. Uh, it was a, a, a decision of the Standing Committee of the Synod of the Diocese of Sydney uh, to donate that to the campaign for uh, re retaining the Marriage Act in, its, in the form that it was uh, in 2017. The, the reasons that we donated that was because we thought it was important to make sure that people understood the ramifications of, uh, of the, the change in the marriage law. Uh, the ramifications are quite significant in, in terms of, not just in terms of God's law, which is, which is true, but the whole relationship of family and children and same-sex uh, parents uh, of, of children, the whole distinctions of recognising that the maleness and femaleness, the, the binary character of sexual identity, which is God's gift to humanity, uh, would become undermined. And subsequent years uh, since that uh, plebiscite, or post-war ballot, I should say, uh, have evidenced that. So now we have the whole movement of, of transgender and of uh, denying uh, the binary nature of, of, uh, of gender as male and female. There is, of course, that uh, very, very small uh, percentage of uh, what we now call intersex, where the, the sexual identity of a child when it's born is ambiguous. And what happens then is the doctor assigns a sex put on the birth certificate with regard to that. Uh, that ambiguity is one of the sadnesses of living in a fallen world where perfection is not always the case when children are born. Uh, some, you know, children might be born with deformities, might be born with, um, uh, with less uh, different chromosomes, you know, in terms of Down syndrome. And they're still people, they're still made in the image of God, but they, they don't have, uh, because of sin, they have that, that, that effect, you know, that uh, change in their, in, in their body and sometimes in their mental state uh, with regard to that. Uh, so male and female is the, is the norm uh, where a person's assigned to sex. But when, but when a person grows up as a male or female, for them to think, because they may have thoughts to change their their the percept perception of themselves, uh, they want to change their gender. Uh, if you've got an X 
and a Y chromosome, or you've got two X chromosomes. You really can't change that. Uh, you may want to be more feminine than, uh, than you are, or you want to be more masculine than you are. And, but I think that to recognize that God has given us a body and a mind, and this is how God has made us. And even the intersex person, for whom it is, it is a very difficult condition, being an intersex situation, I realise that. And although it's added into the LGBT acronym, um, the intersex group is a different kind of group from the uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexuals, and transgender uh, people uh, in, in this group. So I think that the, the dangers of, uh, the, of marriage uh, are seen in terms of the, the, the effects on the family in, in particular and the wider effects with regard to the uh, lowering the importance of being male and female and the complementarity of male and female that God has made. In 2018, a letter was signed by many Anglican schools regarding the preserving of anti-discrimination exemptions. This was interpreted by many as enabling gay kids and staff to be expelled or sacked. You later apologised for the letter. What, in your view, is the right way to balance the rights of religious institutions to maintain their own ethos with other anti-discrimination rights? This is a very fraught debate, um, a debate which is not helped by people not reading uh, texts, but just having their emotional response to texts. And the emotional response to that letter, for example, uh, was extraordinary, almost unprecedented, and shall I say, largely irrational. That, uh, that letter was significant, in, uh, which went to uh, parliamentarians, uh, was in winning a debate in the Senate uh, by one vote. Uh, it was uh, Rex Patrick's vote uh, in, um, in the Senate. And I'd had a conversation with him uh, previously, as I had with a number of politicians at that time, uh, your listeners will recall that when Malcolm Turnbull uh, lost the prime ministership, he decided to resign. Uh, he only had a one-seat majority. His resignation caused a by-election, which, of course, was not won by his party, so the uh, coalition was thrown into a minority government. So they didn't have a majority in the House of Representatives. Uh, if that vote, which was to change, uh, the Labor Party had put a, a motion up to change the uh, Sex Discrimination Act, uh, that would easily have passed in the Rep House of Representatives, and we would have been in a very difficult situation. Uh, that enabled, uh, in the course of time, a, uh, an inquiry and which went on to a report which became the, uh, the Ruddock Report um, and a referral to the uh, Law Reform Commission and the whole question of the Sex Discrimination Act, looking at that. Now, the, the issues are very difficult. Um, in the 1980s, Bob Hawke uh, brought the Sex Discrimination Act uh, into Parliament, and it was an absolutely proper act to have uh, with regard to uh, recognising the way in which uh, people were discriminated against uh, or because, just because of their, their, their gender, whether it was a women having children or women in the workplace, and even still, we don't have exact equality in terms of the work that women do, the work that men do, uh, despite the Anti-Discrimination Act. 
there's a whole range of things with regard to um, uh, sexuality there as well. Uh, it was amended uh, later, uh, later on in this century. And, but in each occasion, uh, schools or religious institutions were allowed to abide by their own ethics, their own teachings, doctrines, tenets, and beliefs. And because if you've got a Catholic school or an Anglican school or a Muslim school, uh, you want to be able to teach in accordance with your uh, tenets and beliefs. Uh, to undermine that, to put a blanket rule that, you know, you had to uh, allow teaching that, you know, sexual activity was all right outside of marriage. That may well be the, the common views in Australia, but it's not the views of Christians. Christians believe that the marriage bed should not uh, should be undefiled and that people should keep uh, their sexual activity for marriage. And the sexual intercourse is something which God has given to a married couple, not something you engage in with people freely who are not married or even with a person who was married to someone else. Uh, those are the teachings of our churches and we want to reflect those teachings in our schools. Uh, when people send their their child to a religious school, whether it be Muslim or, or Christian, uh, they want to have the ethics and the ethos of their religion uh, found in that school. And so therefore, uh, we've, we've always upheld the rights for the exemptions. And that letter to which you refer said exactly that. But of course, it was misinterpreted to say, well, this is just a way of, of, you know, getting rid of gay students, for example, or gay teachers, which of course, there's no evidence for that. It's never been our view uh, with regard to rejecting students from our schools because they identify as gay. Uh, and even if there were teachers who did that, but we want the teacher to still abide by that, uh, in, in abide by the, the values of the school and especially in the classroom when they're, when they're teaching their students. One of our problems I think we've found with the legislation is that the, the language of exemption is not helpful because it looks like we're being exempt so that we can discriminate. Uh, we've come to a strange situation. The word discriminating used to be a positive attribute. Oh, that's a discriminating person because of their, uh, their choice of wine or cheese or, or food, whatever it might be. Uh, whereas discrimination, once you put it into the uh, the noun form, then that's some, some, some now seen as an ugly word. Oh, you're, you're, that's discrimination. Well, uh, what we want is we don't want to be discriminating. What we want to see is that there's a right for us to practice our religion, a right to run our schools and our organisations in such a way that upholds the teaching of Christ. Uh, we are engaged in education because we think that's important for forming citizens in our world. And the best formation of citizens, young people in our schools, uh, is to teach them about God's world and understand their place in God's world and how God rules this world from his throne. So that's not an exemption. We want to see that as a right. Now, having said that, you've got to balance rights. Uh, to balance rights is, is, is always difficult. And the uh, United Nations Charter with regard to uh, civil rights and civic uh, rights, uh, whereby we, we need to balance that so the individual has that choice. But so you might have a right to free speech, 
you don't have a right to denigrate someone or slander someone uh, at, at the same time. So we have to balance rights for the society as well as for our own uh, personal situation. Uh, we have to give up personal freedoms in order for the common good. So, for example, we wear a seatbelt in a car. You've lost your freedom of movement in a car because it's for the common good. It's actually for your own sake uh, as, as well. Uh, you, you, you likewise in our COVID-19 world of 2020 and even now, we have willingly complied with restrictions that the government has given us. We've given up those rights, for example, of singing in church even though it's mandated by the scriptures. We've temporarily given up those rights for the common good. So balancing uh, freedoms is an essential part of life. And uh, in balancing those freedoms, it's a judgment call and it requires great wisdom as to how you balance that. Uh, in the letter to which you referred and in the matter with regard to the Sex Discrimination Act, which has now morphed into uh, a bill of religious discrimination and in the federal court. Uh, Mark Latham's put up a bill in the, in the state government in New South Wales as well, uh, similar to that. And uh, the government has, all on pause because of uh, the pandemic, they've been looking at, looking at the Religious Discrimination Act and when that has been finalised, they'll come back to the Sex Discrimination Act and tidy that up so that we have a consistent suite of legislation. During the Israel Falau saga in 2019, you released a statement saying that his right to express his faith and act according to his conscience is of fundamental importance in any democracy. And it's of great concern to many Australians that his right is being denied and vilified. The way in which Falau's motives have been impugned and his avenues of support have been cut off smacks of a new and ugly Australia where dissent from narrow cultural views is not tolerated. How connected are the issues of free speech and freedom of religion? And how can we persuade other Australians to celebrate authentic diversity in tolerating what they view as harmful beliefs? Free speech uh, is part of, part of our freedoms. Our ability to say what we believe, to behave in accordance with our beliefs, and uh, in the Israel Falau case, I, I would probably have expressed the concerns he, that he expressed in different language, in different ways, but I was adamant in my support for him to say what he wanted to say. It was absolutely appalling uh, the way Rugby Australia and the manner in which the CEO uh, attacked Israel Falau and portions of the media did as well, uh, and where Qantas clearly was to remove its, its sponsorship. Uh, this is a, a terrible uh, reality in our world, whereby my right to free speech is denied and someone's going to undermine me financially so that I don't have a right to speak. Uh, we talk about tolerance, but the intolerance of those people who don't allow you to speak your mind and express your views. Uh, often, I think it was Voltaire or attributed to Voltaire, I, I may disagree with what you believe, but you, I, I agree with your right to, to state what you believe, or words to that effect. I don't think I've got that quite right, but nonetheless, uh, that sense in which we, we, the, the freedom 
that we have to be individuals in accordance with our own moral compass. And for religious people and for Christians in particular, we've got a very strong moral compass because we have a responsibility before God as his image bearers to act in a way which is glorifying to him. We therefore need to reflect upon the way in which we speak to one another. We need to speak to one another with grace and words of wisdom and sweetness, uh, respect for other people's opinion. Uh, you'll see that in the Apostle Paul's engagement uh, with the philosophers on the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He, he challenges them uh, without vilifying them. Uh, he highlights the anomaly of here's, a, here's an inscription to an unknown God. How, how can you worship an unknown God if you don't know what you're worshipping? Uh, he, he does that kind of thing. In the same way as the prophets with regard to telling the, the followers of Baal, here are, your, here are your idols. They're made of stone or wood. In fact, you carve them yourself in the pits you don't like, you throw into the fire, uh, says Isaiah and Jeremiah in their critique of idolatry in their world. Yes, we, we must be able to speak into our world, but we want to speak with our words should be seasoned with salt and should be gracious as our Lord Jesus was. But our Lord Jesus also spoke strongly and acted strongly as he did in the temple. He, he spoke strongly to the, to the so-called moral leaders, the religious leaders of his time. Woe to you hypocrites, he, he would say. There comes a time for challenging language, I agree with that, but our demeanour should be such that we are humble of spirit and uh, want to, we want to win people for Christ. That's our, our ultimate goal is to glorify God in the way in which we speak to people because God's going to draw his people out uh, from our engagement with people who don't yet know him. So therefore, the freedom of, uh, of speech is so important, particularly in gospel proclamation. Uh, it's important for me to tell Australians, if they don't put their trust in Jesus, then they have an eternity of condemnation ahead of them. And if I use the word hell to describe that, then I'm consistent with the teaching of the Bible. But I'm telling them that because I love them. I don't want them to go to hell. I want them to put their trust in Jesus because that is the only way in which salvation can be found. And as we engage with the Australian society, we need to be lights shining in a dark place, shining like stars in the universe, holding forth the word of truth as Paul reminds the Philippians. So I was very pleased to support Israel Folau in, in that engagement and felt that the way in which he lost his livelihood, although there was a, a payment undisclosed, and now he's looking to come back to Australia apparently, and once again, the issues is being raised. We don't want you speaking about what you believe where it has nothing to do with his professionalism as a footballer. But somehow, some elements of Australian society want to curb and prevent and restrain religious thoughts and views and words in the world. But we should withstand that, uh, that way of thinking. Now that we live in a much more secularised environment, particularly in light of the new laws just passed on prayer in Victoria, 
How does the Anglican Church navigate a culture around it that has such different views of sex, identity, and marriage? I think that the the laws, uh, the law recently passed in Victoria is bizarre, to say the least. Uh, addressing something which doesn't exist, uh, there's no evidence for gay conversion therapy, and then using a sledgehammer uh, to crack a nut uh, with, with regard to that. I'm always drawn by the book of Daniel as to how, it, how Christians should engage in the world. When Daniel was confronted with a, a problem in chapter 1 of that book uh, with regard to the, the diet that his Babylonian uh, mentors were requiring of him, for which it was a, it was a defilement for him to, to eat such food uh, and presumably uh, breaking Levitical laws with regard to food laws, which was one of the identifying markers of Jews, of course, in the uh, 6th century BC. And so therefore, uh, he creates a, a, well, he finds a creative alternative. He uh, suggests an alternative of meat, of vegetables, uh, rather than the sweet meats of the, and the, the delicacies which were being on offer. It's very rare in, in human history for teenagers to demand vegetables, but nonetheless, here we have it in the Old Testament uh, before our very eyes, and God blesses him in that. He blesses him, the person over him, under because he's under authority, he's under human authority, uh, to allow Daniel to have this alternative diet. And of course, when the time comes, uh, the testing of the the, the four Jewish boys is seen by comparison with the other students in the in the class of Chaldea, then they find that they're uh, more sleek, better uh, fit for the purpose of the studies they have. When you come to chapter three or chapter six of the book of Daniel, you have two episodes where a creative alternative is not possible. And the three friends of Daniel in chapter three won't bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, what awaits for them is a fiery furnace. And they declare with such confidence and faith in God that uh, God can save us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. In other words, we'll rather face death than bow down. And, of course, we know the outcome of that story. They were thrown to the fiery furnace and God miraculously delivered them, uh, but didn't deliver the person who threw them in. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, of course, is Daniel in the lion's den under a different king, and the same way he's, he was forbidden to pray. How very interesting, the comparison with the Victorian lords. Uh, and yet he was not, nothing was going to stop him praying to God because he was a man of God and a man of prayer. And we know again the outcome of that with regard to being thrown in the den of lions and he was miraculously protected from those lions uh, by God's um, deliverance and God's angel. Now, I believe we should always find creative alternatives when we are told to do something which is by a human authority, which is contrary to God's law. Finding a way to do that is uh, the, the, the best way forward. But where you can't, then I believe that we show our submission to human authorities by not abiding by the law, but by accepting the penalty that comes. It will not surprise me to find that uh, in due course over the years to come, the Christians will be jailed uh, for standing up for their faith. And if that's the case, well, we need to do that. Uh, that's happened through the centuries. Uh, it happened to Jeremiah 
there in the in the midst of of presumably God's people and God's rulers, uh, Jeremiah is thrown to a pit because he was speaking God's word to the rulers. Well, he was, a, and likewise Daniel into the lion's den. We, we may find ourselves in more dens of lions than we realise, but yes, there will come a time when we'll have to use civil disobedience, not for some eclectic cause, but because it prevents us from honouring God, and prayer is one such thing. Uh, I would readily break that Victorian law if I was in a circumstance where my duty towards my neighbour or a person who was suffering from gender dysphoria, uh, uh, that I could not counsel them and pray with them for God's grace in their circumstance. When thinking about the various ages the churches live through, defined by things like exile, persecution, reformation, revival, and so on, how would you describe the age the church is living through now? Well, confused is probably the word that comes to my mind, uh, because we're finding ourselves in a, in a confused situation. Uh, I don't think revival... Uh, is quite the right word, but we should always pray for God's word to go forth and to thrive, uh, to do its work in the hearts and minds of people. Uh, that's really why we're here on earth. We're here to replenish the earth. There's a creation mandate in care for the earth, and so ecology is important, but we're also here to make disciples of all nations. And therefore, um, I think in many ways, we're very fortunate in Australia. We have Christians in, in Parliament and on both sides of politics, which is very pleasing to see. Uh, and I think at state level, it's more obvious, I think, in New South Wales than it would be, say, in Victoria. Um, and it's more obvious, I think, with our own Prime Minister, who's a man of faith, a Christian faith, uh, where he recognised the importance of his faith in his life, and yet he rules as Prime Minister for all people, for people of faith and people of no faith. So I'm, I'm not a, a good prophesier or predictor of what the future is going to be, but I do know at the moment we still have the freedom uh, to teach and preach in this country. Uh, we should not take that for granted. It's not the case in other countries. Uh, China, in, in particular, is not going through a very difficult phase of totalitarianism. And uh, there are other places in the world uh, where that's the case, in, in northern Nigeria, uh, for example, where you've got uh, insurgents of um, Islamists and uh, terrorists, organisations trying to uh, clamp down and prevent only one way of thought, uh, whether it be China or in Russia, even to a certain degree, uh, perhaps less so these days than previously. Uh, we have great freedoms in this country. We should not take them for granted. And so I would like to think ourselves in terms of, yes, uh, the dawn has come and we continue to look forward to the return of Jesus. Uh, Christians in, in previous generations spoke a lot about the return of Jesus. You don't hear it much now in our pulpits. But we need to keep that before people, especially when they're going through suffering and difficulty and whether it's an Israel Folau or a, a Christian in the workplace, unknown to others who are suffering because of their faith and their integrity. Well, uh, remember that Jesus is coming back and therefore keep your eyes on the main game. And 
if the Lord should take you before Jesus returns, uh, make sure that you've, you have found yourself faithful to him, even unto death. Given that your retirement was recently announced with a new archbishop to be elected in the coming months, what would you say to those who are starting to feel an acute costliness in following Jesus, particularly for those who are surprised at how the views of their church have become so unpopular so rapidly? We are in a changing world. It's very different now from what it was when I was ordained uh, 40 years ago. And uh, I, I would... But I would say to the next generation or those who uh, take on leadership um, after my, I step down that, yes, costliness is part of being a disciple. Uh, take up your cross daily, says Jesus in Luke's gospel, and, and follow him. In other words, it, it's, it's not a bed of roses. It's a crown of thorns. Uh, our service of, of people... Uh, requires costliness of us. It requires putting ourselves second and not putting ourselves first, uh, taking care of other people. I, uh, well, the way in which God usually works is that our behaviour will resonate in people's minds uh, to the glory of God, that they'll glorify God in the day of visitation, the language that one Peter has in his first epistle. Uh, that sense in which uh, to think that Christianity is just an easy path, it's actually a narrow way. It's not the broad way. The broad way is full of devices and desires. It's full of pleasures. It's full of ways which please yourself. There's a hedonism to the broad way. The narrow way, which Jesus says is the, is the way that leads to salvation, is a way of self-denial, self-sacrifice, heeding the words of Jesus, even at your own cost, and therefore accepting the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, uh, accepting people's criticism, uh, not trying to defend yourself, but actually defending Jesus. That's the one whom we need to set our hearts and minds on. So uh, give up your small ambitions. Uh, give up thinking that Christianity will just be, as I said, a bed of roses. Recognise that uh, suffering is required of the people of God around the world. Again, as the Apostle Peter says uh, in his fifth chapter of that first letter, uh, we fool ourselves into thinking everything's fine because Satan is around and the prince of the powers of the air is seeking to sow seeds of discontent against the Lord Jesus, and he does so by sowing seeds of dissent against his disciples. Be strong and courageous, for I have called you to this life. Archbishop, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much indeed for being with me today on Talking Freely. Thank you, Rome. That's it for our latest episode of Talking Freely. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do so through our website, www.freedomforfaith.org.au. Freedom for Faith exists through the generous donations of individuals and organisations across Australia. If you'd like to financially partner with us, you can do so through our website.